the contract is what allows you to gain those unit economics. And if you don't have a contract in place that will allow you to uh, scale those unit economics, then the company is not worth buying, in my opinion, if you if someone has started from scratch. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have my man, Thomas Talbert, on the show. Thomas, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Yeah, I'm fun to do this. This is kind of like a listener special. I know you've listened through some of the back catalog. Mm -hmm. We have some context. Fellow Austinite, we've had lunch before. Where did we have lunch at? Jack Allen's? Was, yeah, Jack Allen's in, uh, on 71 and 290, yeah. That is that is definitely my spot. So I'm excited to be on with you and hear a little bit about your story. What is of interest to me here is that when I got into property management, it was already a somewhat older demographic, some would say an aging demographic. And it's been about a decade since I've been in the industry. So that trend has continued. So mm. invariably, there's a need for the next generation that's going to come up, move the ball forward. And you are a part of that. You are the profile of somebody that's coming in to be the next face of what property management will look like for the next 30 or 40 years. I want to hear a little bit about your story. And let's start here. Thomas, how'd you get into property management? I got into property management because... Uh, it's it, it's a long story, but to back up and give you the full story, my father buys and sells companies for a living, always has, buys a company, new paint, new shrubs, and sells it a couple of years later. I grew up helping him do due diligence, and uh, he's taught me so much before I even got into owning a business. I didn't even realize how much I knew until I got into it. Uh, I was a graduate in 2020 during COVID, got my real estate license, was a commercial broker. Uh, prior and wanted to buy my own business. And I have a goal, personal goal of owning a hundred units by the time I'm 40. And my father knew that. And one of the business brokers that he's worked with knew that as well and came to us with this company. And it just seemed like it was just ran too adjacent with my personal goals of owning a business and owning a hundred rental units by the time I'm 40 just seemed like a great fit. So we jumped on it. So were you interested in running a property management business or were you interested in using, using it as a vehicle by which to facilitate expanding your own personal portfolio? I guess it would be the latter. I knew I wanted to own my own company for years. I knew that was the answer to really unlocking my financial freedom. Uh, and it just by happenstance is property management, but it just seemed like it was a match made in heaven, really. I mean, it, I got into owning a business so that I could acquire all these doors. It just so happens that my business can also help me manage said doors. Buy versus build is one of the key questions in business. Are mm -hmm. you familiar with the concept of a search fund? Has that come up for you? Maybe I have heard, heard, heard of that. It's the idea of creating a fund when typically when you're young and when you're early to go find a business. And it's not a business that you necessarily know or even have a deep connection to, but it's a great kind of op for a good, solid risk-adjusted return. Mm -hmm. And the approach is to bring in some outside capital to avoid the day one, let's say zero through 100 unit struggle, which is real, and to start at 100, 200, 300 units. Mm -hmm. Most folks 
don't do that. But for those that do, it can be a massive opportunity to accelerate progress and to benefit from somebody else's years of experience. How did you think about starting from day one, building it from scratch versus coming in at how many units did you, what was the business at? I bought it at 367 and we're now hovering around 352. So what were the pros and cons that you weighed in your own mind to think about building from scratch versus coming in with some modicum of scale? Uh, for me, it will it was never about building it from scratch. It's, uh, I guess, the lens that I was brought up in doing for even my, my father's company was I would help him. He never started from scratch. That's a lie. He did start one from scratch. But most of them he bought in the middle and just grew. And um, I, ba- I bought a company that was good. It was making money and just needed a sales function, which, of course, is why I reached out to you in the interim. And... Uh, needed a handful of things to really make it start running rather than jogging. And uh, I think it's much easier to objectively look at something when you have bought it and I'm not so emotionally attached to it being the ground up. It's not your baby. Right. It's not my baby. I can look at it from a bird's eye view much easier than if I had bought it, than I had started it from door one and say, okay, these are, you know, before I sat in the driver's seat, I knew it was like, Hey, there are three things that we're going to do. And that's the obvious path forward. Um, then it was easier to step in, step into that, uh, having bought it. So let's talk about some of those priorities. You got into the business. I talked to you maybe, I don't know, six weeks after you had kind of come into the business, something like that. I think, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm I wrong. I think six months was the- Six months. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, the first six months. Fairly early drowned. in the life cycle. Yes, sir. So tell me about your priorities. What You show up on day one, you have some sense of what you're going to be doing, and then there's the reality of the actual experience. What were your priorities like over that six months, and what did you very quickly learn? What was confirmatory, and what was surprising and new, and maybe counter to your expectations going in? Okay, so uh, I guess I'll start with the three things I wanted to change upon taking the wheel. One was needed to bring it into the 21st century. There was too many paper processes. I hadn't owned a business one day in my life, but just knew it was like, okay, there's some obvious economies of scale by just cutting out all this paperwork. They were uh, would print out all of the invoices that they had for vendors over a two-week period and then scan them to the owners manually manually and it that was day one i knew that was going to go secondly what was femax they were kind of running a uh um it it was a cost leader type system and cost leading is not the way to enter into the market certainly when you take on a bunch of debt like i did so cost leader for what was there i mean typically a cost leader is like you're making the money elsewhere was there an adjacent attached business that they were making no, they didn't have a maintenance company. They weren't marking up their maintenance, which is so, so it was just an unprofitable business. Not very profitable. Not very business. profitable for what it could have been. Got it. Um, and then oh, I give you one, two, um, and the other one was get a uh, sales function in the company. They were they had I bought one of the best URLs for SEO purposes in the industry, which is fantastic. However, um, they had no real salesmen going out, shaking hands, making phone calls, cold calling, doing something to stir in leads 
on their own rather than just letting them casually walk through the door when it was convenient. So when we first had that conversation, we were talking about growth. That's what you would approach me about. Mm -hmm. It was more of asking me about Lead Simple and what we could do there, et cetera, on the CRM site, et cetera. The conversation, as I recall, was quickly redirected back to the underlying unit economics of the business. Mm -hmm. That was the second point that you brought up of the fee maxing. How did you think about what the opportunity was what was the what was your initial expectation of the levers that you had at your discretion and what kind of progress have you made in in expansion revenue over time right so um you know the first things first without even getting without having read about property management knowing that uh, maintenance was the number one achilles heel i before i even bought the company it was obvious that that was like the most time and effort is spent towards mowing lawns, changing AC units. Like it was like, I could see that by in, a, in my due diligence period. And so I knew I was like, okay, we got to start charging for maintenance. There's just no way we can't. That's just the biggest Achilles heel in this whole thing. Um, and again, I, from the unit economic standpoint that you brought up to my attention, when we met, I wasn't looking at it through that lens I was looking at it in terms of EBITDA multiples, making sure I could outrun my debt coverage. I mean, I knew I was, um, I mean, I bought the company knowing I could cover my debt service and then in the summer months be sitting really, really pretty in the winter months, be kind of skating by and, you know, wanting just to grow. So in the winter months, I wasn't sweating it nearly as much. Um, but when you approached me about, uh, no, you didn't approach me, but when you mentioned the unit economics and really made me think about that and dive into what are my current unit economics, what is going to increase it, um, I quickly got back with my accountant and we made the spreadsheet so that we could track all that. And it opened my eyes to, okay, this is where I am. This is where I am to the whole market. And it opened my eyes to like, wow, I have a lot of room to grow. I didn't realize how much room I had to grow. Uh, until I brought it down to the unit economic level, which you suggested. Do you recall what the revenue per unit was at when you bought the business? When I bought the business, I believe the revenue per unit was sitting at $160 a door. And this month, I believe we were sitting at 189 I believe we pulled our fees in, on the 15th and we do all the calculations based on that. I think it was 189. Good. So some good solid growth, some good solid shift. Mm -hmm. And where do you hope to take that number? And let's say, you know, a year from now. A year from now, I would love to be consistently in the 200s. We had one month where we did hit 200, um, but I would like to, even in the slowest months, be sitting at 200. I know that the highest in that in my market was sitting at around 240 based on the NARPM study um, from that profit coaches helped push forward, et cetera. Um, but I hope to be hanging around 200. And that's where I think I'm really going to be able to achieve real scale and uh, start spending a lot on adding doors. You know, certainly with that much margin, I can afford to buy a few more doors. Let's talk about the process of actually taking over a business. How old are you? 25. So you're 25 coming in, buying a a business that's been around for what, 20, 30 years? Yeah, since 1974. Some 1970 business around established in 1974. And here in 2020 is when you bought it? Or? 2021. And in 2021, mm. 
25 year old Thomas Talbert shows up to buy the business. That's a thing. That's a vibe. Right. Walk me through those dynamics. What was the staff perception? How were you perceived? What was the interpersonal dynamics of, of executing that leadership transfer like for you? Right. Um, it was nerve wracking because it was one of the things I was very aware that I was the runt in the room. I'd, these are people that have been with the company for 10, 15 plus years. And my first thought when I came in the door was, oh my goodness, how are, is anyone going to listen to a word I have to say? I know I don't know what I'm talking about. They're going to very quickly know I don't know what I'm talking about. How on, how on earth are they going to listen to me? And then about a weekend, a week in, they started listening to me and I started realizing they were responding to whatever I was saying. And then it quickly was like, oh my goodness, I, I have I have to really double down now because now they are listening to what I have to say. They're not just, I don't, I, I won them over in a week and it, I was like, wow, okay, now, now I really got to lead. I got to jump on the horse now. And everyone in my office, at the time when I bought the company, the closest person in age to me was 40 years older than me. Mm. Wow. That was the closest person in age to me. Significant gap. Mm -hmm. There's a book I love called Play Bigger. And in that book, they use a title for dissenting people. They don't just disagree, but are committed to not seeing another viewpoint succeed. And the term that they use is a Zed. If there's a Zed in your organization, typically it's not somebody that you went over by persuasion, but you really need to facilitate their ejection from the organization and their graduation to a better, more aligned opportunity. What did that look like for you? Were there any Zeds? Was there anybody that either chose to leave on their of their own accord, or that you helped facilitate that process? How much of a of a how much of a tussle was it at its peak? Um, I would say at its peak. So I bought the company from. A, from a partnership. One was the broker who's the position I uh, took over. And then one was the maintenance manager who facilitated the turns and all that jazz. And I had to hire that position out. Um, his wife also worked in the company and was said to stay on. And everyone in my mother told me when I bought the company and I was, and I had t spoken with her and told her like, I really value your opinion. I'm going to need it here in the next coming months. Like, I would love it if you could stay on for as long as possible. And she was like, oh, well, I'm totally going to stay. Everyone and their mother was like, dude, six months. No way. She makes it past six months. And about three months in, they after the uh, escrow period had worn off and her husband got a big old check, <laughs> she did not want to stay. And for good reason, I, um, I think she, uh, she just didn't like taking orders for someone that wasn't her husband, which makes total sense. And I'm a 25-year-old punk. I was not mad at her at all. Um, you know, we had a nice clean, clean break. Um, but the other part of that was the other staff that was in place at the time really bought into, the, they almost understood immediately when I started talking about bringing in non-paper processes and they started to understand how quickly how much time that's going to save them et cetera, my maintenance uh, uh, coordinator now, Bear, is the only person that stayed on past acquisition. And he bought in day one. He said, and he's he's turning 69 here in uh, um, next week, I believe. And he was just so quickly on board 
and you know, he, he was someone I just assumed was like, well, he's just not going to listen to me. There's no way, but he immediately bought in and, um, was no Zed at all. There was no objection. He wanted to go full force and do the, do the change, change the engine as quickly as I did. So it sounds like the business is feeling stable right now. As you look to the future and what you want to build, how do you think about differentiation? Austin is an interesting market. Mm -hmm. A lot of great operators in that market. I know many of them. How do you think about differentiation on a service level for investors, for somebody that's calling multiple companies and having a sit down with you and two, three other companies? What is your aspiration? Even if you're not fully there and being able to execute on it, what is your vision for what you're hoping people would hear or see that would cause them to choose to work with your company? You know, I've spent the better part of the last six months trying to figure out like, man, what is my, how am I going to differentiate? Because you've connected me to several of those people that you mentioned and they've uh, been nothing but fantastic to work with. You'd think they would just see a 25 year old punk like myself and just kick me out the door and not want to talk to me, but they have been fantastic to at least take my phone calls and listen to me. Um, the biggest differentiator that I would like to, uh, be in the market is someone that doesn't also do property management. Yes, I'm a property manager, but maybe I do insurance late, uh, later in the game. I, I provide a, other services that aren't necessarily property management related, but are very much intact because, you know, it's the saying, I like, oh, you like donuts. You know, it goes with donuts, coffee. Uh, ancillary business units. Ancillary, yeah, thank you. And um, what that what that also does is creates very, very sticky clientele. If, they, if someone wants to leave me and they want have to untangle their property insurance, uh, the tenant's got to get off of my... Uh, insurance that I provide to the tenant and, um, X, Y, and Z and the other, because I have, I have to really, really mess up for them to leave me. Um, and I Warren Buffett, I guess always describes it as building a moat and I want to build it in that way as being able to uh, provide other ancillary services. A moat with alligators in it. Yes, exactly. So on the core services of residential property management though, when you think about what investors are, are looking for, the market has shifted. You're feeling it. I'd mm -hmm. be curious to get your observations in this month that we are in October of 2022, starting to see some trends of, of a turn, et cetera. The promise, the implicit promise of property management from those that go back to 08 is that the industry is counter cyclical, meaning that when realtors and the uh, mortgage industry is losing its shirt and its mind collectively, that residential property management is still sound and stable. What are the initial shifts in the market that you're seeing right now? And what opportunities are you seeing that creating for your business? Well, in the Austin market specifically, we're seeing an absolute standstill in properties moving. We've had several properties that we've been trying to sell for the for a, a month or two months now, and, and that happened. We listed them kind of right as the market hit, started to paralyze, and you just can't push a string. People are scared. They don't want to, these interest rates to hike up, and everyone's just kind of sitting back and letting them and trying to figure out what's going on. What opportunities that is opening up for us is we're able to come to our investors and say, there's a shift in the market. You were sitting pretty about six months ago trying to sell at a peak. The peak is no longer here. It's gone. So save up your money. In about 18 months, we predict that there's going to be fantastic buying opportunities for our owners, and we want to be able to be there to tell them, all right, 
now's the time and prepare them. Really what we're seeing now is let's prep it for a year, two years, whenever we can feel the bottom as best we can to help our investors take advantage of the dip in the Austin market. All we can tell them to do is prepare. What is the mix of the portfolio that you manage? Is it exclusively single family? Is it a mix? Almost exclusively single family. I think I probably manage, I'm going to say about 75 or so multifamily units that's duplexes and uh, quadruplexes, et cetera. Got it. And do you anticipate that that, those ratios will stay the same? Are you hoping to continue to lead with single family? Yes, I would like to lead with single family. There's still, uh, right now, there's a lot of builders that are offloading a lot of their product. They want to clear their balance sheets just because they're just as scared as the market as we are. Um, And hoping that there's still some investors trying to buy those up and get them with them because I believe that where there's not going to be a whole lot of single family built in the next year or so, even though I think there's still plenty of neighborhoods, I think that's going to slow down significantly. And, uh, you know, trying to catch people who are buying those properties and being able to manage for them is what we're, is who we're trying to get in front of for sure. Thomas, what are you committed to not doing in the near term? Discipline requires saying no. Buffett famously said that the best way to be productive and successful is to write a list of the top 20 most important things and then to pare down to the top five Mm -hmm. and to commit religiously to not doing anything else. What are things that you're excited about and seem interesting and like great opportunities that now does not feel like a good time to pursue? You know, I was listening to one of your podcasts on the plane ride up here and it was, I'm forgetting the gentleman's name who you were uh, interviewing, but he said, your business plan, I believe, is what you say no to. That's mm-hmm. that's that's your business plan. Um, I think in the interest, like I said, I want to FEMAX. I'm not going to take on any door that doesn't rent for over uh, for under $1,400. I'm not even going to look at it. Um, I just believe that the Austin market is the rent rates are just still going to creep up. My, You know, what's interesting about the pegging it at that number of $1,400 is that over the last two years, $1,400 like really dropped the quality of the property actually, right? Mm-hmm. As the, as the average rent rates went up, $1,400 is a threshold actually became a not that nice of a property right. in some ways. The the the, uh, the benchmark actually went down in terms of the quality of the property. So if you if you would express that in another way instead of a dollar unit, what else would you say about the quality or the type of property or the owner that you're looking to, to discriminate or weed out? Um, I'm, I guess I'm trying to weed out because we have a couple of them in our portfolio that are looking for discounts and are going to beat me up over everything. And a a lot of these owners don't even have written in contracts. They're just on a handshake, which of course makes me nervous. And I want to not engage with people who, and it comes down to just not, not being a slumlord. I don't know how to say that nicely, but that's just the thing of it. I don't, I don't want to manage those units and certainly owners that are also willing to take on that kind of risk they s- tend to be a little bit harder to deal with as well. What do you require as reserve? 500 bucks, a and door. What's the most typical contention point with folks that maybe lean towards kind of that slumlord mentality? What's like the, the most hot button issue that you typically are having to fight them over? Um, one, it's the reserve. The reserve that I took over 
was um, for this company was a hundred bucks a door, um, which just wasn't enough. And getting people to change, like, look, this is a hundred bucks a door. Wow, hundred bucks a door. And then they'll I'll get pushback because you know someone who has thirty units but has a hundred bucks a door. I mean, they have three thousand dollars, and objectively, that's that's about enough money to repair the doorbell. Exactly. I mean, it's and they're like, oh, but like. But it's a hundred bucks a door, sure, but it's three thousand dollars in the pool. You can just pick and choose from yeah, each. Right. And I have to explain to them like that is not the market. This is not nineteen eighty. Like this is just simpler. Like you said, it's not going to fix anything. I mean, just to get a plumber to go out there and just look at your property from his car is going to be worth that. <laughs> like, um, and just major pushback on on what we keep in reserve, even though that we've been doing great business for them for years. They just don't want to give that money. And, uh, um, another, uh, is using, using income to offset, uh, project. For example, we have a thousand dollar water, uh, we place a water heater for a thousand dollars, just spitting out numbers. That's not actually what that costs, but, um, and say the rent's $500 and their reserve is 200 bucks. They want us to send them that seven hundred or five hundred dollars worth of income, and then have them send back mm. another. And it's and back in the day, that's how that worked because they would send checks back and forth, and there's no real way to keep it. But now that I'm on, I switched to Appfolio, and I can we can both be looking at the ledger from our separate computers and say it's a thousand dollars anyway. Slice it; it's going to take. It's just longer process, and there's just no reason why I shouldn't just take seven hundred from you now. Send me a check for three hundred and we're square. And besides me sending you seven hundred, mm-hmm. then you sending me a thousand. It's a, been a mentality that we've been having to fight. And checks. Oh my goodness, I'm so tired. Of paper checks. Paper checks. I'm so tired of dealing with paper checks. And I've been fighting tenants and owners to use the portal and get into the twenty first century and pay me that way. So you're making these changes mm-hmm. that are progressive, good for the business, but it's change. Invariably, some people don't like change. <laughs> Let's transition and segue into talking about the terms of the deal. Clawbacks are always one of those terms. It's a, astute and fair for you to think about if I buy this business and half the clients leave within the first 30 days, clearly I shouldn't be f- paying full price for that. Right. How did you structure clawbacks in this deal? And to what degree did those become relevant based on client churn within the first six months, year, et cetera? So the deal that we struck with the property manager or the owners at the time, we said if, um, and it benefited them too. We, uh, in the contract, we said that if um, the number of units decreases or increases by 5%, then we'll change, we'll have a price adjustment. You know, if it decreases by more than 5%, then the price is obviously going to decrease. If it increases by more than 5%, by some miraculous reason, they brought on a bunch more, right? As I took over the company, it's like, well, that's more units. We'll pay you more. That just seemed, that was fair. Uh, we did have 2% leave. I think that- uh, 2%, wow, that's a fairly tame. It was fairly tame. And um, again, I don't think a lot of owners got to see me walk into the office, of course, but I was of course scared to death that they were all going to get up and walk away. Certainly after- um, six months later, when I told them I was going to start charging them for maintenance, I was scared again that everyone was going to get up and leave. Um, and, uh, 
no one no one really did and i think the people who left i think were already on the fence mm-hmm. um and they're like you know what new management it's just a good time to change the batter and go to go to someone else that is notable new management not all new staff you can imagine another acquirer that would have cut uh, come in cut costs from day 1 fired everybody and then it would have been not just new management, but new faces, new point of contact, new maintenance coordinator, mm-hmm. holistically a bunch of people that I've never met before. I'm sure you you probably feel like that, that that's got to contribute to what really is a fairly low churn rate at 2%. That's that's fairly pretty impressive. I mean, it was so funny. Immediately, I started calling owners, certainly a bunch of the big ones to say, hey, I'm Thomas, the new property manager. Like, here's my personal phone number. Call me day or night. You know, really... Uh, making sure they liked me and buying lunches, et cetera. And the maintenance coordinator who I mentioned to you, uh, who has been with the company for years, so many people were like, okay, the new owners are leaving. All right, all right, well, what's, is Bear leaving? And I was like, no, 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 he comes with the furniture. And everyone was so ecstatic for him specifically. I mean, he's the guy who calls them, tells them their water heater's broken and is always able mm, to, mm. that, uh, even a lot of times this, he's calling them to say they're burning money and he has just dealt with everyone over the years and everyone's so happy to work with him. He's, yeah, he's was, he was a huge factor. And I think a lot of people not leaving. Hard to quantify the value of that kind of loyalty and connection, right? Hard to mm-hmm. put a price on that. I love that you had that in place. I want to hear more about the terms of the deal. How was it structured? What was the, I assume this was a, a seller-based financing. What was the, what did the financing structure look like? What was the timeline? Walk me through some of those components. So um, I was actually able to pay all cash. Um, I'm of course paying a debt directly back to my father to the tune of way too much money, but <laughs> I think it, it, it's earned in this scenario. Um, at the time the market was crazy and, and realistically, we got a great deal on it after I got it under contract and Matt Teifke, who actually connected me with you, I was reached out to him and he's my current broker. Um, and he was listening to me, tell him about the deal that I had under contract. He was like, I mean, man, if you back out, like, <laughs> please get me, jump in. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to jump in and heard a few other estimates, you know, cause once I got it under contract, I started calling like, what's the real, what is someone else willing to pay for it? And then I talked with someone else who's a realtor at Keller Williams who had a a big firm come in and offer her her property management company is about 100 doors less than mine and they offered about twice as much to buy her out than I bought mine for and so I was like well okay I'm well I have to close this deal it's just that had to make you feel good it, it made me feel great of course debt service every month is scary for anybody no matter what but um, anyway, we were able to buy it, uh, all cash again, that time in the market, everything seemed to back in 2021, it's crazy to believe, but everything was just flying off the shelf, mm-hmm. all cash and businesses were selling for a lot like houses were at the time, just as quickly as possible. We were the first people to see the deal, maybe the second. And we got it under contract three days after getting the, uh, offering memorandum. And did you feel like that all cash was a significant differentiator in the offer for you? I would have to say so. I also, um, having my father who was is a seasoned vet in buying companies and um, he had worked with the business broker that was uh, helping us with the transaction before. And so 
that they, yeah, I was sitting at the table and didn't have a lot to offer other than I'm going to be the one calling the shots. And of course that would make anybody nervous. And the owners were so nice and helped me so much, but I mean, understandably it made him nervous. And of course, having my father be able to look over my, say he's looking over my shoulder and, and they can look at his resume rather than mine. Cause my resume is my GPA <laughs> and the handful of properties that I sold prior. It's not, not a big one. And what are you assuming about the, the, the loan life cycle? How long are you assuming it's going to take you to pay that off? Um, right now it's going to get paid off in 12 years. My game plan is to get it off my father's ledger. Once I get about 20% down into the company and then go to the SBA to refi so he can pull his money out and get it into bigger, better stuff. 12 years. Okay. Interesting. And so that was a reflection, I assume, of accommodating terms rather than the size of the overall note. 12 years in general would be a, a longer than what we would typically see mm-hmm. for, for a time period. Right. Now, the SBA, I think, generally does seven to nine years, mm-hmm. if I'm uh, not mistaken. I'm sure that uh, my game plan is to refi here in the next two years with the SBA. And so I'm sure I'll be dealing with their terms and not terms that I was able to negotiate with a much more uh, lenient bank. Um, but uh, yes, that, that was longer. But the uh, game plan right now is just to put as much equity down as possible, get to the point where I'm sitting at 20% equity as quickly as possible, maybe more. You know, I generally speak, I pay him a stipend, it's interest plus the equity payment and then From usually principal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, plus principal. And then usually I, what's left after that, I split into giving back into my principal and the rest I take home to go fly to, to live. Las Vegas and go to a NARPM <laughs> show. So. And so in terms of your expectations for the cash flow potential of the business, because property management businesses are meant to be cash flow positive. That mm. is what they do. This is not a, a technology play where it's going to be some asset value thing and you flip it, et cetera. They're meant to kick off cash. That's the point. What are you seeing? Let's say post note. Let's say you had no note right now. What are your expectations and your hopes for the kind of free cash flow that this business could kick off? So when I bought the company, the free cash flow was actually really great. They were sitting at about um, 40% gross profit, I think 32. God, it's been a year since I've looked at that offer memorandum. About 32% free cash of is what came of revenue. So I came to the bottom line. Of course, those owners did not have debt like I did. So that changed the picture a little bit. I'm running with my debt service included at about uh, 12 and a half uh, free cash after debt. Um, I would like to hopefully by the end of next year be running at about 30% free cash. Of course, that just means adding more doors um, and fee maxing as much as possible. And are you taking a salary right now or just distributions? I am taking a salary right now. Although in the deal structure, and again, this is something that my father is just knew how to do when we bought the company uh the software he had, the software and the i guess would you call it intelligence i'm i'm forgetting the word right now along in the short we able to basically IP? say that, yes the ip of the company that was that you can depreciate over three mm-hmm. years um rather than goodwill which you can't depreciate at all and uh he was half of the company we said was um, IP. And so I'm actually have a tax, you know, my first 
for the next three years, I'm not going to pay taxes on almost anything that I gain because of that tax shield that was created. Interesting. That's some interesting nuance. Are there any other terms that if you go, could go back and do it again, you may revisit or tweak? Yes. So, and this is a big one. And, uh, my father again was trying like knew of this, uh, death trap for lack of a better term, but we weren't able to structure the deal. It's, um, making sure there was no accounts receivable, uh, when we bought the company long and the short, uh, they didn't have an accountant on staff and they said it was, Oh, it's a cash. It's a, it's, cash basis, cash basis. The company was actually running on a cruel basis. And so when we bought, when I bought the company in November on December, they pulled money out of the operating to them. And they were saying it's because it was for October's income. Mm. And it, and my father was, had put stuff in the contract that specifically was said, they have no accounts receivable, no accounts receivable. And we beat up the broker about it as well. And we thought that we had written it specifically to prevent that exact thing because my dad has had a very similar thing happen to him um, when he was buying companies back in the day. And so um, he was. we were aware of it, but did not put it in clear enough English to prevent that. Because when they did do that, we had to go back to the contract. And you're like, oh, we said it right. That doesn't quite. It wasn't quite hedged. It wasn't quite enough leverage for us to go pay up. And so did you keep the business on accrual then? No, I brought it to cash. It's interesting going from cash to accrual in either direction can Mm -hmm. be a real pain. You really need to know what you're doing. There certainly are advantages. I've done that once making that transition. And if you're not dialed in or paying attention, some of the details there can be tricky. Right. What about the the rest of the accounting picture in terms of the trust accounting numbers, et cetera? That's always a potential pitfall. Where it was when you came in, that was everything more or less how you expected it to be in that regard. Yes, I mean, the they kept clean books. It was, um, which to anyone selling a company, make sure your books are as clean as humanly possible because I tore them apart before buying the company, obviously, and I knew they were clean coming in. Um, of course, there were a handful of things I didn't necessarily understand, certain fees, et cetera. But and after a phone call, it was very easy to figure out why they did X, Y, Z, and the other. Um, and uh, right now, I, I went out and hired uh, an accountant who is, you know, it's pretty easy to do being I'm 25 and having being I'm 25. But I hired people smarter than you for sure. And my accountant is brilliant, and I, I mean, he's. I got him on speed dial. He's saved me more times than once, and I'm sure he'll do it again. Um, and uh, he's really helped me to get a grip on my books and just so that I can open up my QuickBooks app on my phone and at any given time have a very clear picture of what's going on in my company has been a huge transition. That's been awesome. And they were on quick, they were on uh, desktop QuickBooks. The, uh, mm-hmm. Switch to QBO. Yeah, so I had to switch to QBO. Um, which was simple enough. I mean, it was an asset purchase, so it was literally just opening up a new QuickBooks account and that was it. But getting all the all that stuff in place, having not really worked with QuickBooks. Outs, yeah. 
you know, I'm sure anybody listening to this is relating that has kids is relating on the level of thinking about the opportunity that they could provide for their own kid. I have mm-hmm. three girls. I have no idea if they're going to have any interest in entrepreneurship, but if they did, it would give me a lot of joy and meaning to be able to facilitate that kind of an opportunity to open a door for them. Did you feel a specific burden to figure this out because your dad helped facilitate the process? Did that kind of like add any sense of of urgency to you to make sure that you really made good on this and that, you know, figured it out as opposed to just kind of flipping a coin and hoping that it worked out, but not necessarily feeling like there was a gun to your head? Right. I know. Yes, of course. I'd, I mean, of course, I did not want to quote, disappoint my father, but I, but he was more excited about getting me in this position. And we've had so much fun. I mean, we've, we had already talked for, I mean, since I was in high school, very high, uh, I was way more educated on buying, selling companies than most people were. And I was able to talk at a very high level about it. Then my IQ on it has just grown significantly. And I think he is personally more excited, um, was more excited than I was getting into it. He wanted and he wanted for me to take the stretch. He wanted me to take the the leap and for him to be there and help for as for as much as he could. He I mean, he was jumping out of his skin. He was so excited. So yes, I was nervous. There were several times we talked about it where I was like, I can go find debt financing. Like, don't worry. Like I can get this deal to close some other way. And he he wanted to be involved and He's involved. He's not involved in the day-to-day operations, but as course, an advisor and a mentor. As an advisor and mentor and really just the network of of course he's very entrepreneurial. He's got several friends that are entrepreneurial and I call them on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I have about five individuals that I that probably hear from me once a week on and most of it's how do I do X? Mm-hmm. And they could not be happier to help me and that's a uh, not Really, I'm not only being assisted by my father. I've got, I'm so blessed to be able to call multiple people at a drop of a hat who are willing to take my phone call and answer my questions. So what advice or counsel would you have to somebody that is thinking about starting a property management business from scratch, doing that that slog? What's interesting to me about that dynamic is that you really never get fully paid back. You really never get fully remunerated for the suffering early on. Somebody buying a very small business that involved a huge amount of blood, sweat, and tears to get it off the ground, the buyer doesn't care. The buyer doesn't really care about that suffering. They're not like, man, that seemed really hard. I'm going to pay you extra to compensate you. So there is to some element what some would consider some needless suffering early on in that early phase. And for those that where the the buy option is not an option, then it is what it is and you take your lumps. And certainly that was my experience in business. But for those that can facilitate getting access to debt, which via SBA, for example, is more and more increasingly accessible, it is an option. What would be your counsel to somebody that is kind of holding up these two options? They were disposed to thinking about starting, but now maybe they're listening to this now and they're considering the possibility of a purchase. How would you advise them to to balance the two? And if they want to go towards the buy option, how to execute that? Um, If they were to go towards 
Before considering that, I think you may have mentioned that there's a book called Buy Then Build. I'm forgetting who the author is at the moment. I uh, just got done reading it myself. Um, and it, it outlines exactly how great debt is and how much debt can help people grow companies and what it does to scale industries and it, that's just the best. Debt buying a solid, steady, recurring revenue, cash flowing business. Right. No, it's it's fantastic for doing that. Um, but if you're uh, so, I guess moral moral of what I'm saying is read that book before you make the the decision of do I build it from scratch or do I buy an existing one. Um, and um, if you go the um, the build from scratch part, I would say for property management specifically, have a really good fee maxable contract because that's what's valuable. Um, You know, I would pay, I would pay significantly more for a property management company if the contract uh, was worded, was, was worded to be able to maximize my fees and, uh, um, are you now are you talking about the the underlying unit economics or the actual contract itself? The contract itself, the management contract is a very powerful thing and it allows you to pick up so many different types of streams of revenue if that contract is not I mean the it's the contract per unit obviously and it is a bit you know unit economics like you dictated but the contract is what allows you to gain those unit economics and if you don't have a contract in place that will allow you to uh scale those unit economics, then the company is not worth buying, in my opinion, if you if someone has started from scratch. It can be uh, some handcuffs for sure. What about the PMA that you inherited? Have you re- rewritten it from scratch, made a couple of tweaks, a little bit of a, a bolt-on to the existing contract? Mm-hmm. What changes have you made for the PMA that you started with? So I was very lucky. The prior owner of this company was a lawyer. And so we still use the uh, uh, promulgated contract um, from Trek, but he had a very strong exhibit A and had, and the contract was in high and tight shape. And it was something I didn't really take into consideration until after I bought the company and really dove into what the contract said, how it was written, what it was asking of both parties, et cetera, that I realized like, wow, this is, this is an a bigger asset than I anticipated. Um, and the only difference that, uh, the only changes that I've made uh, have been just increasing fees. And to tell you the truth, I haven't actually been um, rewriting the contract. It's just telling the owners like, this is what I'm going to start charging for X and you know, have an uh, open discussion to dialogue. Don't just start charging them and say, this is it here you go to say like, Hey guys, like I'm increasing X fee. Here's why a handful of people will call, you'll answer their questions. And me, you know, like I said earlier, one of the scariest days was when I was telling everyone that we're going to charge for maintenance. And that was the biggest thing I changed in all our contracts. And that's in our contracts, but I told the owners that I was going to be paying now and it was going to be in a contract that I wrote up going forward. Um, and there are some objections, but, most mostly I was able to explain to them the value of what we were doing and what the market dictated it was worth. Um, and no one, no one left. I think I had one person leave over the maintenance markup. 
Sticking with the theme of legal, have you been sued yet? Have you had any litigious situations? That's one of the interesting aspects of property management is that Mm. frontline experience with landlord-tenant law that other businesses, like, for example, running a software company, it really just doesn't come up. Have you had any any run-ins, and what do you feel like your level of preparation for um, that kind of situation is? Um, to tell you the truth, I'm not really prepped to get sued right now. It's ne- never on someone's like, okay, here in the third quarter, we're going through a lawsuit, so let's prep for that. It's never. What's, I'm your, sure, le- what's your legal counsel situation look right, like? Uh, I'm I'm sure I'll go find a good lawyer <laughs> when, okay, when the time when the, when the time go. comes. Um, let's let's all right. Let's keep knocking on right, wood here. Keep knocking on wood. I mean, I, I haven't had any issue with that yet. You know, the real rub there, in my opinion, is uh, between how is between the landlord and the tenant. I'm not necessarily scared being sued by an owner. If an owner doesn't like what I'm doing, they're just going to leave. That's just as simple as that. They're going to take their business elsewhere. They're going to respond with their Mm -hmm. pocketbooks. Um, A tenant who I am morally responsible for, I'm handling their deposit. There is a lot of delicate things of theirs that I'm handling and and in charge of now. Um, That's the only avenue that I really see a real threat for lawsuit. And... Um, and, and again, like I said, there, my, the guy I bought the company from was a lawyer. And so there was a lot of s- systems and writing then legal jargon already in place that because he was a licensed lawyer, when he wrote all this stuff, it's in place and protecting me more than I thought it's you know stuff I would have never thought of. Um, but of course, given that he had a, law, a lawyer's background, it was just CYA all the way around, and it's uh, and that's really a, uh, for me that has given me a great sense of relief that my bases were more covered than I anticipated, given that I bought the company from a lawyer. What does the workload look like for you right now? One more time, how many how many units, and then three fifty one. How many hours would you guess you're working per week, ballpark? Hours I'm working now, I am. I could be working about 20 hours a week. How many, I, how many hours are you working? I'm probably working around 45 to 50-ish a week. There was a time in there I hired my – I had an accountant originally, wasn't working out, so I changed the batter, got a new accountant who was doing – really well for me. And it was, and it's crazy how much a single hire was able to clear my desk of the minutia that I had to manage prior to hiring a certain accountant. And once that hire was in place, all of a sudden I was sitting at my desk, like feeling like I had to do something, but then going through my calendar, like, no, I don't have any meetings. Look at my notes. No, there's no owner who called me recently and was mad for X, Y, and Z and the other. And they're dealing with my accountant now. Um, that hire was able to get me above the blocking and tackling is what I like to call it and into working on the business, not in. And so 20 hours a week, I would tell you I'm working in the business and I'm. it's been a real effort for me to go, okay, where do I apply this excess time? Do I, I, I come to the NARPM event and learn as much as I humanly possibly can? Like I said, I'm 25, still learning as much as I possibly can. Um, and 
uh, I go to other real estate offices, shake hands, try to start a uh, a uh, property management class that helps me bring in more uh, clients. Try to uh, you know create a marketing and sales system within the company that works, and that you know how does the handoff between X, between X, Y, and Z all work? Um, being able to that one hire brought me to a point where I was able to focus so much on the company. And that's when we've really been able to see these leaps and bounds of FEMAX, et cetera. Because when I've been able to step back and go, okay, we can do X, Y, and Z. I can bring in this outside contractor who's going to be able to do X, Y, and Z for us. That was a full-time hire, the accounting? Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, it's a part-time hire. Um, he's paid hourly and he, he just gets, he was a CFO for New Balance in a past life and is just looking to retire he he just couldn't sit still and so doing all this for me is i mean he he can do it in the sleep almost you know well, the stars aligned on that one oh my gosh and i i i lucked out in more ways than i can count in making that hire for sure and you know he can just do this job in his sleep he's done harder stuff and um you know the funny thing is i have to tell him no sometimes tell him like no 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 like that's my project to take on I mean, hey, I don't want to pay him, pay me, but he's done the high-end hiring and firing and shifting through resumes and um, doing all this. So he just has so much expertise to leverage. And uh, there's some points either do I let him do it or do I have him teach me how to do it? And then I just go do it mm-hmm. um, has been the real trade-off. And, and that hires, I'll say it again, it's been the best one I've made so far. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you're on a great trajectory. If you think about five years from now, what would need to be true for you to feel like this was a fantastic decision for you to get into this business and for you to commit yourself to this really serious endeavor? What needs to be true five years from now for you to feel happy, satisfied, and like you're meeting your goals? Five years from now, I need to own at least 25 rental properties. Um, and looking at to expand to another market in five years. That's what I'm, those, those are the thoughts I want to be thinking. What are you thinking? San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, LaGrange. Thinking Denver or Boise. Or oh, this is a lifestyle else. play here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is the, this is the, uh, this is the place you just like to be. Places I'd like to be, and also similar markets to Austin. I feel like mm, San Antonio is so vastly different. In Austin, even though it's just an hour south. Sure. Um, Denver, I think, has very similar uh, housing shortages and demands that Austin does. Um, so does Boise, and I'm sure a couple other cities that I'm leaving out. But I think it it's easier to rinse and repeat my franchise, for lack of a better term, just my playbook in similar markets rather than ha- than picking it up and going to San Angelo, Texas, my, that playbook wouldn't work there. You know, trying to find similar markets that my playbook works in would be ideal because then it's again, just plug and play. I know what to do. I know what staff to hire and it should just be an easier launch in my opinion. And again, I I don't know. I'm assuming it's going to be the same. I'll tell you that. I'll, Call me in five years. I'll tell you if, if it worked out the way I thought it did. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's exactly. But right. I trust that you're going to figure it out iteratively with a lot of grace, style, and dignity. Appreciate you coming on. And we'll keep eyes on you. And I can't wait to have you back on the podcast 
five years from today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jordan. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Hey guys, quick message on the lead simple front. We are hiring aggressively into a bunch of different roles right now. Head of customer success, finance and accounting manager, customer implementation pilots, customer success associate, software engineers, all over the place. So my question to you is, do you know somebody? Do you know somebody that might be interested or a fit for one of these roles? You can see the full scope at leadsimple.com forward slash careers. Head of customer success, finance and accounting manager uh, are the ones that we are focused on the most right now. But I'd love to have a conversation about any of these roles. So if you have questions, you can email me at jordan at leadsimple.com to understand the scope, the depth, and to know if anybody in your network might be a fit. We are a live crew, highly competitive, a little bit nerdy, and we love to have a really good time along the way as we work. So if this sounds like a fit for somebody that you know, love to hear from them. Thanks, guys. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.